0: My guest today is Mike Munger of Duke University, longtime contributor to the Library of Economics and Liberty and to this podcast, Econ Talk. Mike, welcome back.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Uh, I want to talk about your recent trip to Chile and your insights there about markets and incentives, which is our general topic today, some of the peculiar ways that we think about markets and incentives. Tell me about your trip.
1: Well, I, I just got back from Santiago last night, so I'm still a little bit disoriented. It was snowing pretty hard up in the mountains when I left, and it's kind of hot in North Carolina now. Um, part of the time, a lot of the time when I'm riding around in Santiago, uh, traffic's pretty bad, um, I was thinking about kind of the, the interesting role that Chile has in a move towards using more private rather than public solutions for all sorts of things. Chile for a long time had a a private mass transit system. They've privatized a number of their schools. So It's it's been a, a laboratory for the contest between what should we do through contracts and markets and what should we do through the public sector. And it made me think, about a number of things that we have objections, people object to using contracts, object to using incentives and markets, and they may not have thought much about why, so it was a really long flight, and I spent most of it thinking on the way back.
0: Uh, if I remember correctly, Santiago is in the uh, eastern time zone.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually is, a little bit east of Washington D.C.
0: Yeah, this is a, a mysterious thing to most people because yeah. Chile is on the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it's also the reason why when you go through the Panama Canal from the Atlantic to the Pacific, it's part of the reason that you go to the southeast, uh, which is not intuitive.
1: No, it's it's until you look at a map, it's pretty darn disorienting.
0: Yeah, most people I think think of just South America being south of North America, yeah. and although it is generally that, that,
1: well, Southeast America takes so long to say.
0: Yes. Yes, it does. Um, So, tell us about what's going on in Chile. Uh, As you say, it's been a laboratory. Uh, The University of Chicago trained a number of Chilean economists uh, in the '70s that ended up, uh, and in the '60s who ended up playing a role in uh, some of their market reforms. They privatized social security. Yeah, they're one one of the first.
1: They're still there in a number of the universities as professors. They've got called Chicago's, not surprisingly, at the University of uh, Santiago or Universidad Católica.
0: And so what's going on there right now that caught your interest uh, or that's not going on, things that have changed?
1: Well, the, the leadership of Chile for several elections now is La Concertación, which is a center-left um, coalition. And I think there's some interesting questions about... They've accepted a lot of the pro-market reforms. Are they just waiting until they can solidify their political power to roll those back, or have they bought into it? And the, the early evidence looks more and more like they're just waiting until that they, they can roll some of those back. Uh, one of the things that I thought was most interesting was what's happened in just the last few years to their mass transit system. Um, they're, Chile used to have an almost purely private mass transit system, at least on the surface, so nineteen seventy five or so they built a metro system, a subway system it was one of the biggest in Latin America. And there's five million people in the urban area of Santiago and they have a population density of about twenty one thousand per square mile. So it's not quite as dense as New York City, but it's close. And it's not surprising they have a with with that kind of density and a lot of wealth, they have a pretty good mass transit system. But what was cool was on the surface they had a private bus system. And this private bus system had some good things and some bad things, but there's, just, there's one fact that really stood out to me, uh, maybe it's just because I'm American, but I think it's true most other places, most other countries also. They had an urban mass transit system that operated in the black. That is, there were no public subsidies of any kind. Thousands of people every day went from where they were to where they wanted to go, and nobody had to pay except the person who was taking the trip.
0: What a novel idea.
1: Well, the... Concertación looked at that, and they said, they had a little bit different way of saying it, Russ, not, <laughs> it's operating in the black. What do you think they saw? They saw profits, and profits Ooh. were evil. The very fact that anybody was making profits on this meant that the system was inherently flawed. And so they took a system that was $60 million a year in the black... And did the sort of reform you might expect. They fixed the profit problem, though.
0: Now it loses
1: $600 million a year. It loses 10 times as much as it was making. So they solved the profit problem in a way that, well, public planning has solved in many other places also.
0: Well, now there's a key question now, which I don't know if you have the data, but the key question would be, how many passengers?
1: Ridership has gone slightly down.
0: Uh, Now that's impressive, because it would be, you could argue, right, that... When they made a profit, they were catering to the people willing to pay the most, and that might be a mix of poor and rich, but might might be mostly rich people, and therefore uh, they weren't serving the general public very well. They were just interested in making money, yep. and by privatizing, they had uh, – by publicizing yeah, – by, to, publicizing, to, to ruin, to, by uh, turning it into a public uh, sector experience rather than a private one, uh-huh. they would serve a wider audience because yep. they had lower prices. And that would, in turn, allow for a larger ridership, and that, in turn, might yield negative... Uh,
1: they're, they're, they're not evil people. You, intuited, but you live, you live in the People's Republic of Washington, D.C., so you've heard this before. That's exactly the argument they wanted to make. Look, it's catering. There, there, there were a couple of problems. It wasn't just profits. It was that the routes were just going where the people wanted to go, not where the planners thought they should go. They wanted them to use the metro. They didn't want to have surface routes that went all the way to the office. They wanted them to shuttle into the metro, use the metro, and then come back to the surface. The other thing was, there were different classes of service. So if I were wealthy and wanted an express bus with maybe some coffee served on the way, I could pay for that. If I wanted just a beater jalopy that was going to stop every two blocks and pay pennies for it, I could do that. Now everybody has the same class of service. It's much more equal. What happened was that... Commute times, average commute times, when they moved from the private system to the public system, went from 40 minutes to two hours. It tripled. Commute times tripled. And that's the reason why people stopped riding mass transit. There's a flood of people who started using private cars, and now traffic is completely snarled. Because when you say ridership is down, people didn't move out. They didn't stop working. They still have to get to work. Now they're driving the cars on those same clogged streets.
0: You know, this is a really extraordinary story. Um, do, do we have – is there any way to get a, a map of where those buses used to go and where they go now? Absolutely. Oh, there, there are
1: be... maps like that, and I, I can tell you well, – there's, there's two things. The, the, the really key difference in the routes was it used to be that there was redundancy in the system. Sometimes the metro breaks down. Sometimes the metro is crowded, and so you could just take a bus because a lot of the buses were parallel, and the alternative was, if traffic was snarled, I could take the metro. So having redundancy meant that there was extra give in the system. It was always possible to get to work on time. So the, not only was the average commute time 40 minutes, the variance was low. Now... The average has gone up to two hours, and it may take four hours. People are in danger of losing their jobs or they don't get home until nine because a lot of times the the bus drivers just pass. But there's another issue that I want to talk about, and that's incentives that the bus drivers themselves face. And this is one of the most interesting things I've ever encountered in terms of a natural experiment in the use of incentives. So if you're ready, here we go. The drivers before got paid by the number of passengers they took. Because it was private. If I could pick up passengers and take them, then i I get paid. And it looked a whole lot like the chariot race scene in (laughs) Ben-Hur. Because, you know, you've got two drivers in these fairly old but powerful buses, and they see ahead of them a pretty large group of passengers waiting at the bus stop. Well, if I get there first, I get all of them. And they're doing fifty or sixty kilometers per hour on these crowded streets to try to pick up the passengers. So let's admit that's there a was negative. a problem with the old system.
0: Yeah, that's a negative. But
1: oh, absolutely, there were there were accidents, um,
0: fatalities, uh, no doubt. There were there
1: were a few fatalities. The drivers were pretty skillful. They usually only wounded pass- wounded uh, people who were walking rather than killing them.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, if you kill people, it does reduce your chance to stay on the job. probably it it,
1: it, it. But it was bad. I don't. I don't mean to make light of it. There really was a problem. And so, the, the two problems that like, La Concertación and the uh, President Bachelet of, of Chile saw was, first, there were profits for the companies that owned the bus companies, and second, there was greed on the part of the drivers.
0: A lot of um, urgency to get to those fares.
1: Yeah, well... That's not necessarily a bad thing. Right, no, it's good
0: and bad. Obviously, they were nice to people on their buses and tried to keep them happy and content. And, and tried
1: to get there quickly.
0: And without killing them because if, if, if I do a bad
1: job, you won't get on my bus next time because another bus will be here in three minutes, a different company. So the problem was that they looked at that and they said, well, it's the market that, that's causing these people to act in a purposive way. So if we just take it out of the market, there's going to be a kind of human transubstantiation. They'll be different, and then they'll just work for public service. So now, here's the, here's the incentives that drivers face. They do not get paid by how many passengers they have. They get paid by finishing their route as close as they can on time. Now, you can see this coming. What's going to happen?
0: Yeah. If, I'm, if I'm
1: late, do I stop?
0: Or if I see someone running, waving frantically in my yep. rearview mirror, do I slow down? Well, I,
1: I can, I can sort of see not doing that. One person waving frantically, yes, I'm not going to give them service. This is worse than that. There's 30 people waiting, and I'm five minutes late. I oh, pass. I don't even, I don't, I don't even stop. Don't even <laughs> stop. It's not that I don't wait. I don't stop. I get <laughs> seriously, I get zero pay for picking them up, but I do get evaluated on whether I'm on time. So people were waiting an hour and a half or two hours at the first bus stop because there's no reason for the driver to stop.
0: Now, Did you ever witness this in person?
1: This is, this is, widely, this is widely verified.
0: Okay, I want all of our Chilean uh, it, it listeners widely to verify this because that, yeah. that sounds a little bit horrifying, a little bit uh, – I imagine it happens sometimes. You think it was a prevalent problem? Oh, but
1: it, it, think, think how much it would stand out in your mind. Yes, it would. (laughs) Uh, That that sort of thing tends to get your attention. Well, plenty of drivers do stop. Occasionally, they don't. But the the point is, what is the effect of the incentive? And so here's my point, because it may not have been obvious. It is not just true that people respond to incentives in markets. People respond to incentives in every situation they find themselves. And so the way that we compensate drivers, it doesn't matter if it's a market setting or if he's employed by the government. It's going to have implications for his behavior. And so, you want to
0: say that again? That's that may be one of the most obvious and profound things a guest has said on the show because it is a very beautiful way of really getting at the public choice school of. Politics. I'll, I'll, I'll give you profound, say but it's, it not, is, it's not obvious. Say, it, say, it, say what you said again about incentives. People respond to incentives in all settings. Yep.
1: It, it doesn't matter if – the, the mistake that the government in Chile made was they thought, well, the problem is in a market, people are greedy. And so let's take them out of the market. And so what the, my claim is people respond to incentives regardless of whether it's a market or government employee setting. The incentives that I have determined my behavior, and the fact that drivers got paid according to schedule and not number of riders meant, at a minimum, they weren't going to go out of their way to make sure that ridership was up. And here's the thing that that really started to hurt, was they also changed the kind of bus that they rode. They used to be kind of small and nimble buses because they were doing the Ben-Hur Chariot race thing. (laughs) And there were plenty of more right behind me, so it was kind of linear. And it's true that some of those were old, and they belched black smoke. And so the the, uh, Santiago government bought new buses that were four or five times as long, and they're articulated. They have these... um, uh, it's like one bus is towing another, and then it, it it's like a, a two train cars. So it bends in the middle. Yeah, that's right. It makes it easier to it's go like around a, corners. It's like a, a
0: straw, one of those straws,
1: yeah, a bendy straw. So this yeah. is a bendy bus. So the the new bendy buses had four doors, and all of the doors open to disgorge passengers, but only the front door goes into where the driver is, so you can pay him. But the driver doesn't get paid according to the number of people who get on the bus. Uh, Forgive me. He doesn't get paid according to the number of people who pay. What he's getting paid for is time. So it happened more and more that as people got out of the back three doors, other people would scamper in those doors. Now, the driver could pull over and go back and yell at them and get them to pay or make them get off the bus. But why? So when I say ridership has gone down, it's not clear ridership has gone down quite as much because a lot of people are riding for free. The driver, the the only thing that makes the driver, would make the driver stop is a sense of honor or indignation. And you you can beat that out of people pretty quickly. It's hard to go back, get them to make change. You guys get off. I can't tell who was who. Everybody points at someone else. It's like being a school bus driver. Who wants to do that? And so the, the, the driver's... Routinely, just watch people get on the back three doors. It's a it's a, a hundred foot long bus. It's extremely long, and it nothing happens.
0: A hundred foot?
1: It's two fifty foot long buses. How
0: how how many people can ride on? Those? Oh, a
1: huge number. A huge number can.
0: Uh, and how did you take any of them?
1: No, they were. They, they didn't stop. <laughs> no, I, I, did, I, I didn't actually try. I, I, I would have liked to. They're, 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 they're enormous buses.
0: But I'm curious. One of the things, uh, when I lived in St. Louis, uh, the city added a light rail system, <clears throat> which uh, St. Louis is a, is a pretty sprawly place, and it's a very bad idea to have light rail. But it's such a, a fad in, in cities now. It's too expensive to build a subway, which would have been a really bad idea. So they build this uh, yeah, there's a, even
1: worse ideas than yeah, light rail. Th- there
0: are worse ideas, not many. A monorail would have been one. Yep. Uh, but they went with the light rail, and I always found it uh, I would take it occasionally to go to a, a Cardinals game. Yep. With, that's uh, that's
1: I have ridden it there too.
0: A fine franchise uh representing the uh, an inferior league, but a, <laughs> a fine franchise. And the the when you'd go down to see a Cardinals game, it'd be packed. Uh and so I think people who did that thought, this is a great success. But if you ever looked at it during the middle of the day, it'd be empty. I mean, there'd be, you'd well, see three Well, the middle or four of the
1: day, and by middle of the day, you mean between nine and four. Exactly. Yeah, I don't, mean, I don't mean
0: 1230. Yeah. I mean, anything other than rush hour, there would be a handful of people on these, uh, as these cars raced by, uh, these train cars. So I'm curious, on these buses, in the middle of the day, you have this 100-foot-long bus, is it? Empty, packed, sort it, it of crowded. Is, the ones that
1: I saw were full. Uh huh. And the the problem is they don't come very often. What, what I really saw that was full over and over again were all of the bus stops. There's just not nearly enough buses.
0: And I want that must be to hold down the got to hold down that deficit if you're running a six hundred million dollar def six hundred million
1: six hundred million per year. Is
0: that well, dollars? This, this or is in a city of
1: six million, <laughs> so it, it is a it is a big place.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, the, here's the other thing. The 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 thing that I found. So most, wait a minute. So
0: you say there's six million people roughly in the Santiago, in the San, in Santiago.
1: Yeah, in Santiago, in urban Santiago. It's a huge
0: city. So you've got six million people. You got a six hundred million dollar losing
1: a hundred dollars per person.
0: Hundred dollars per person. So if you're paying a roughly an annual fee. Family of four is paying a twenty four hundred dollar fee for the privilege of uh, riding a very crowded bus every once in a while. For
1: the privilege of not riding it yeah, mostly. Well, yeah, I would uh, guess. Well, yeah. the average commute's gone from forty minutes to two hours. President Bachelet actually made a speech where she said, this didn't work out like we planned. We owe the people of Santiago an apology, particularly the poor people. So the very ones they thought they would serve by eliminating, although it's never been clear to me how you serve poor people by preventing wealthy people from having a different class of service. But they eliminated the better buses hoping that that would make service better for the poor, and it's been a disaster. A oh. lot of them actually lost their jobs.
0: But they're happier because there's, there's less inequality. They, you know, they don't have to watch the, the rich people on the fancy buses eating the caviar and yeah. the lobster if, tails.
1: If you want to elevate the sin of envy to the status of a virtue, then yes, I'm sure they're happy. Yep. Well, there, there's two more things that we've brought up that were kind of technical details that I wanted to go back to. Okay. One was the routes. Okay. You asked about the map of the routes. Mm-hmm. It used to be that There are certain directions of transit from mostly residential to mostly business and industrial neighborhoods because that's how people commute. They go from where they live to where they want to work. And it used to be that the bus routes and the metro routes were parallel. There were some feeder routes to the metro because that's where people wanted to go. But there were only as many as that's how people wanted to go. If it was faster and cheaper to go on buses, that's how people went. And so the cost per passenger for buses still is about one quarter of the, pass, the cost per passenger for the metro. It, it's just much cheaper to be able to use city streets. Mm-hmm. But what what the what the city did, what the the, the new system Transantiago did, was to eliminate. Almost all of the routes that paralleled the metro. Now, almost all of the routes go to a metro stop or emanate from a metro, metro stop. So I wait 20 minutes. I get on a bus. I go 10 minutes on the bus to the metro. I wait 10 or 15 minutes because the metro is so crowded I can't get on for three trains. People push. There's, there's fistfights often at the metro because it's so overcrowded. I finally get on a metro train, I get off, and I wait 20 minutes for another bus and then ride that for 10 minutes. So it isn't that I'm now taking two-hour bus rides. What planners wanted was they just thought it was more rational to use the metro for longer trips and have the buses be feeders. Well, if that's what people wanted, that's what they would have done. The fact that there were all these extremely viable and highly profitable routes that paralleled the metro said that that's not what they wanted, but they didn't use that information. There was a lot of information in the previous system. So your first thought, Russ, because you've read Hayek, you know about markets, was let's look at the map of the old system. That was not their first thought. They said, what should the map look like? Mm. And they drew it from a planning perspective rather than from a perspective that would have served the demand of commuters.
0: Did you ride the Metro at all while you were there? We rode the Metro. Did you punch anybody out at a platform I, or anything? I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. I right? know they, you are. They That's, got out of my way. Oh, okay, I'm just curious. <laughs> it was also the middle of the day. Uh, see, I'm a pretty small guy. I run. But <laughs> you, you being a larger guy, you might, you know.
1: I, I might could push my way yeah. on, although it it the, the Metro is so overcrowded. What they wanted was to increase ridership on the metro because the metro was losing money. The metro could not be more full, and yet it still loses money because it's just a more expensive way of
0: traveling. I guess they could raise the fares, but that would probably be politically unpopular. It,
1: it would be disastrous given how difficult everything else has become. I mean, there's two ways you can raise cost. One is to raise fares, and the other is raise time. And raising the fares would do nothing to reduce time. Right. So the, what people are complaining about is how long they have to commute. Well, the other thing, the other thing I said there were two factors. The other thing was that the new buses, these big bendy buses with the the articulated uh, joint in the middle, were six or eight inches wider than the lanes of the streets of Santiago.
0: That is the greatest thing of all time. That <laughs> may even that may be the, my favorite thing in the in the podcast so far. So
1: there were more accidents. I mean, the problem with the old bus system was that there were accidents and fatalities. These new buses. Scrape people. They scrape corners. They the only, run over pedestrians often.
0: The only thing better than them being six to eight inches uh, wider than the lanes would be if you told me that they are ma- manufactured by a company whose president is a close relative of the somebody in power. Can you I, get I, any I, inside I, information I, on I that? I think
1: that that's not true. This this, this was a Chile is not a corrupt country. Yeah, I mean, that's but that's who would, who, would so but
0: who about but, this? Who would order a bus that's that wide?
1: It was more rational. It made more sense. We can put more people on them.
0: I guess. Okay, so tell so the, me... You,
1: for sure, the plan was they were going to wait longer and have fewer buses, and then pay drivers based on how on time they were.
0: Seems like a good idea on the surface.
1: Uh, until they pass the group of people that's already been waiting for an hour.
0: Now let's, um, let me ask you one question about the private system that existed before. Do you have any idea how many companies there were in that system?
1: 3,000. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, first of all, nanny nani boo-boo to you for asking, because yes, I do know, and <laughs> it's 3,000. How
0: can that be? Yeah, I'm thinking two, it's four. A, it's, a, it's a
1: city of six
0: million Well, there people. must have been some informal companies that, that essentially were yeah, yeah, running. Informal is t- the best way of putting it, yeah. Uh, running. Some,
1: somebody's uncle that, that had an old Volvo yeah. that he had people stand on top of.
0: Yeah, is there... Uh, uh, what was the uh, 80-20 rule here going? Was, was What proportion of ridership you think came from uh, some proportion of those companies? I assume that 10% of the companies took 90% of the riders. I, I,
1: I think that's probably true, although Santiago is a lot like St. Louis. And for people that haven't lived in St. Louis, there's not one city of St. Louis. There's a bunch of small municipalities. And Santiago is even more like that. The actual city of Santiago only has a population of 200,000. So uh, 4.8 million or more of what we call Santiago is other municipal areas that are contiguous. You couldn't tell the difference. You drive from one to the other, you wouldn't know. Um, And a lot of these bus systems were local, because a lot of what the travel people wanted to do was local. Some of it was larger, so people specialized. There was division of labor. You had small buses that would just travel around locally and stop at every corner, and you would have large express buses that would go all the way from your neighborhood right to downtown without stopping, and would have amenities. They would sell food and coffee. Uh, So when you say there's 3,000 companies, there was a lot of product differentiation, and there was a lot of competition based on quality as well as price. But still, I'm sure you're right, that a relatively small number did most of it.
0: Yeah, but still very interesting that there were so many.
1: Yeah, there were many. But 3,000 you could identify, not your Uncle Murray with the Volvo.
0: So let, let's think about the the political economy of this now, unless you have something else to say. Oh,
1: but this is great.
0: Um, you have a system, the private system that existed before. Obviously, it had—it wasn't perfect. Um, I, I don't know what the average fare was, um, and I'm sure it varied a lot by, you know, whether it was a neighborhood or an express. So there's some fair structure. Yeah. And there were these very visible negatives to the system, the, the Ben-Hur accident problem. Um, there must have been some, maybe some old ones, old buses. That, and pollution. Pollution, pollution and overcrowding. From old ones. Overcrowding on the bus itself. No, or, but
1: there were too many buses. If you looked around and looked, there were too many buses.
0: Right, which is a standard argument about in this kind of setting that you hear economists make, there's going to be inefficiencies because multiple... Yeah, except
1: each of these were... Co- they're only there because they're covering their costs.
0: Well, that's, right? I yeah. don't know
1: that there were too many.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so you had some negatives. The, the positives, everyone probably pretty much took for granted. It's just the way the world was. Uh, the negatives irked people. And so there was a political uh, attractiveness to... I want to. Say, I said publicized before as a joke, but yeah. And the next That's word that the word com- I've been using. Well, the next word that comes to mind is nationalized. That's not the right word. Uh, no, ci- city size. City size—a uh, horrible word. But to 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 take away the. By the way, is it against the law to, to have a private bus now? You bet. Okay.
1: You can have taxis, but they have to be licensed.
0: One and one person, one ride. Presumably, one person yep. per ride. So they they basically banned this functioning, successful. Profitable private industry, and turned its functioning over to the city, which has made a huge disaster of it. From all accounts that I'm hearing from, and it had a
1: big increase in cost to the And a hundred dollars per person
0: okay. per year. Okay. So here's the puzzle, and this is will get us launches us into the next section. Uh, if you're right, and of course, you know, I don't know if you're right. I've, i been, I was in Chile in nineteen eighty one, I think, uh-huh. for a summer.
1: That was a different regime, different
0: world, and um, so let you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe you were fed some bad free market bias stuff, Mike, yep. while you were down there. You, you know? know how those people are. Yeah, may, maybe the system actually is working I, I, great. I talked to a bunch of <laughs> Chicago. Exactly. So, but so if you're right, though, then you'd think that people would say, "Hey." We messed up. We really, as you said, the president makes a speech and says we made a terrible mistake here. Uh, we messed up your system. And as a result, uh, let's go back to the old world. And that never happens. Nope. No, because, so, so, and, and Russ, let's talk you, about why.
1: You know why. And the answer is the thing that you and I thought was profound but not obvious. And that is that it's just not true that people only respond to incentives in a market setting. It's not true that you got human transubstantiation. So the fact that the current system misses two things that markets provide us. Markets provide two things. One is information about demand and cost, and the other is the incentive to do things in a particular way rather than some other way. So we take those two things out. Now we don't have any information about where people want to go or when, and it's hard for planners to say, well, let's have a route here. Well, why? Why? Why there and not somewhere else? Let's have a route at this time. How would you know? Without competition to, to winnow out which of these is better, there's no way that you could know. The other thing is there's no reason to try to take care of passengers or worry about their concerns, their needs, and the, the amount of time that they have to spend. So if you, if you miss that profound but not obvious point, then you think, well, oh, what we need is a reform. What we need to do is spend more money. Unless you think of that market alternative, then you're going to end up endlessly kind of reforming, but the reform will take place in the context of the current system, not going so, back to a private system.
0: That's my question. Why?
1: Because of greed and profit. There were two problems with the old system, greed and profit, and we all know those are bad. At least the current system solves that.
0: Okay, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to, here's my challenge. I heard about five minutes ago, this profound, I obvious is the wrong word. Um, there needs to be a word actually for something that's obvious once you think about it enough. Uh, you know, uh, what's
1: well, called economics.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. Um, you know, Harper's Magazine has this wonderful um, feature in the back where they ask their readers to coin words for concepts that don't have their own individual words. So. so this would be something that everybody knows. It's obviously true, but you don't really understand it deeply and truly and in your gut. So five minutes ago, you said everybody responds to incentives. So you were talking about the drivers and the people who were uh, were driving the buses, that they just had a different set of incentives that weren't very now consumer-friendly, and as a result, people were being left standing in the lurch. But the other people who are responding to incentives are the politicians, so the puzzle to me is this, and it's a it's an internal puzzle. It it it's relevant in the United States and every country in the world, uh but particularly in democracies. So here's the puzzle. You you've done something that was really dumb. Uh people are mad about it. it let, let's put it in a in a household setting. Um let's say I go to fix the I unclog the drain of my sink. And to do that you need to Take the stopper out. There's a weird little thing below the sink that you have to detach. And I successfully remove the barrier that's, that's causing the sink to be clogged. But I forget to reattach the pipe. Uh-huh. So my wife comes along into the bathroom and turns <coughs> on the sink water, and it floods the entire uh, vanity below the uh, sink. Uh-huh. And she says, uh, we got a problem here. And I said, oh, what was <laughs> so I thinking? You know, I, I went to fix that, and I left the pipe unconnected. Now, usually what I would then say is, well, let me put it back the way it was, and she'd be happy. What politics some seems to do sometimes, and I'm going to give you another example, an American example in a second, what politics seems to do sometimes is say, oh, we've got a problem, clogged drain. Let me unclog it by disconnecting this, and then I'm going to leave it disconnected.
1: Because so I, there's a different mental model. You have a model of plumbing that's consistent with the way water flows. Suppose you thought that water flowed different ways under different plumbing schemes, and the disconnected one works fine because this is public water, and it will go where it should go. Well, then it then is possible. one. didn't, I'd be surprised. Of course,
0: it is possible in that setting that even if you left it disconnected, the water, if you just had it lined up just right, yeah. it would work okay. But I'll give you another example. I think I mentioned it. We mentioned it recently in a podcast, you know, the ethanol problem Uh Congress has encouraged and mandated and, I think, subsidized the use of ethanol in, in our gasoline, which uh, has led to a huge increase in the demand for corn, which has led to a higher price of corn. You and I talked about this recently, actually, uh, not so recently, and we both talked about how we don't really know the reason that, that corn is more expensive or that anything's more expensive. But it seems reasonable that it has contributed to that. And a lot of people are saying, gee, that was a mistake. Yeah. We shouldn't have done that ethanol thing. Yeah. Um, It's not repealed yet. I wonder – and now here, in the case of the ethanol, it's obvious one of the reasons it's hard to repeal it is that the people are making money hand over fist. Yeah, they don't think it's a mistake. They think it's a a crucial contributor to environmental improvement.
1: Well, to American national security.
0: And that too, and to my children's health and to a reduction of cancer rates. So so in Chile, I wonder – so, again, you're going to push this mental model idea, and I didn't give you a chance to really flesh it out, and I'm going to let you do it some more. But we can think of two reasons for why a, a bad policy might persist. One is, well, people just emotionally get attached to the bad policy. But the second is, is that, yeah, everyone thinks it stinks and it ought to be changed, but there's a political problem because the people who have benefited from the new regime are very resistant. They dig their heels in, and there's inertia in the political process that wouldn't exist in an industry that's losing $600 million a year. It would just disappear. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on what might be going on there beyond the mental model? Why don't, you, why don't you articulate the mental model argument a little bit better? First, by way of introduction, the, the reason
1: I brought up the mental model question is that the, the economists sometimes talk about something that's Pareto superior, that maybe every, makes everybody better off. This, as far as I can tell, is a Pareto inferior policy. No one is helped by it.
0: No well, one. Except for the bus manufacturer. Just well, the, to the bus that.
1: manufacturer is Volvo. Okay. And they, they make these 2.5 meter wide buses that are, 2.5 meters wide is, is Pretty significant. A lot of the roads are six, seven feet wide, and so 2.5 meters is more than that. I suppose Volvo has helped, but they have no... no they
0: don't have a, Yeah, that's they're, the they're, they're
1: they're They're not really constituents. They're not really stakeholders.
0: Nope.
1: yep. Everybody else, without exception, is made worse off. And so... So, yes, my first thought is interest groups, the, the public choice approach. Look at interest groups, look at elites that have, have a reason. Maybe there's kind of Chicago approach. Who's making money? I just don't see that here. And what I do see is a, a very serious, these are serious people, they they, they really want, I, I I'm willing to believe, they're not cynical, they want to improve their society. And so when they see greed... And profits, they honestly think, well, that's just wrong. That, that is, it, it's unfair, and inequality isn't right. And so we're going to improve our society by changing this system so that it performs better and there's less inequality. Okay.
0: Now, now, you and I think that's a, that's a, a mistaken uh, fantasy.
1: Well, I I disagree with it in some ways normatively because I don't think inequality in the sense that different people pay for different levels of service is bad. But suppose you do think that's bad. Suppose you mostly cared about the poor and wanted to reduce inequality. So I understand inequality.
0: that. That's fine. So there are people who feel that way, and let's say they're noble, well-intentioned people. So you put the new system in place, and it's an utter failure. Who then says, well, we just need to tweak it? Don't. Aren't there people – who are suggesting that? Let me say it differently. Are there any voices to go back to the old system?
1: No, there, there really are no voices to go back to the old system, except some Chicago's because it's political suicide.
0: Most, but that's the puzzle. Why? Yeah. You, you, voters, why would it be political suicide? The voters are being tormented by the current system. Yeah. They should be. They should be. Again, l- 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 let's let's take a um, you know l- Let's go to the Soviet Union in 1917 they have a revolution the revolution at the time was greeted by many intellectuals as a great success uh-huh, sure uh, it was a it was acclaimed people went and visited and said my favorite quote is i've seen the future and it works yeah well it didn't work uh, they couldn't feed their own people they had a, a so-called uh, you know, uh, They had bad weather for, for 70 years straight, and yeah. their, the harvest never really quite made it back to Always the – Always less than they expected. Yeah, and one, the obvious reason was is that the incentives that were facing farmers. Now, if if you had gone to a, 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 a Soviet citizen in 1930 or 1940 or 1950 or 1925 and said, do you think these collective farms are a good idea? And you could get them to tell the truth because they were convinced that you weren't going to kill them or shoot them or put them in the gulag. They probably would have said no it 's horrible no, I, I, don't like think,
1: the- I' don't think that's true. I think most of them actually believed uh, most of them actually believed that that system was better, and that next year soon they 're going to get it
0: right okay. well that 's a possibility, but to accept my argument for okay. a moment, suppose there were large numbers that said yeah you know this this is horrible yeah. and i 'll tell you a reason why I think they knew it was horrible. The people i 've talked to who lived under that system and you know it 's a handful it 's a small sample it 's not uh it's not exhaustive, obviously.
1: Well, and clo- it's not random. It's, it's not random. people, people who made it economics.
0: here. And, no, no, no. These are just Soviet, former Soviet oh. citizens who made it to the United States who I've encountered and uh-huh. had a chat with about what life was like day to day. It was incredibly corrupt. Going back to your incentive point, there, there was an enormous amount of, of fiddling and, and dishonesty and destructiveness. Yeah done to make sure that you complied with bureaucratic decree and nothing done to make sure that you did economically rational stuff. They
1: agreed with that. They thought it was corrupt. They they didn't like the
0: corruption. They saw that. They lived in it. They they were aware of it. Uh, It wasn't like, oh, the guys at the top skim off a lot for themselves. But the
1: corruption was the problem. They had causation wrong. They thought that corruption was the cause of the difficulties, not that the system
0: caused the corruption. That's a possibility, but let me get to my punchline now. My punchline would be that you know, you could you could, you could could argue that, well, even if the average citizen in the Soviet Union saw that the system wasn't working well and blamed the system for the problems, well, it's a dictatorship. You can't really expect those folks to – their voices to be uh, important in the political process. Now, there's a whole separate issue of dictatorships to also re- have to respond to political uh, forces, so I'm going to leave that to the side. Yeah. But Chile is a democracy. Why can't a politician entrepreneurially say, "I'm running for office. My platform—I only have one issue, and it's public transport. Public transportation. I want to get rid of it. I want to go back to the world of buses when it worked well
1: with, with better regulation. That we'll Okay, regulation.
0: a little bit. Yeah, but wouldn't wouldn't that carry the day? Nope. Why not, Russ? Do you think? Well, let me say it differently. Do you think the average bus rider standing on the corner for two hours? Who remembers the day? They're not it wasn't decades ago, it was last year. Yep. They remember what it was like when they had the nice bus. Yep. Why wouldn't they be in favor of it?
1: I, I don't think that enough would. And and let me let me put your question a different way. How many cities in the United States have private bus systems?
0: Uh, zero, I suspect. The
1: problem is not different.
0: No, I disagree. Because Chile has the experience. They've lived through a private system. The average American thinks that, oh, yeah, if we had a private system, it would be horrible. Only It would only go to the rich neighborhoods.
1: I, I don't think they thought of the old system as being private. I think they, they thought of the old system as being the old system. And going back, for Chileans, going back to the old system uh, means that there are buses that were old and the problem with accidents, although there's enough accidents now that, that maybe they would. Well, um, UDI, the, the Chilean party UDE, which is the the sort of Chicago representative party uh, is taking that the position that you recommend for them and we'll see how it works there, there is one party that, that is saying we should re privatize the bus
0: system now I guess it's possible you no know, having raised my rhetorical questions I you know I guess it's possible that that it that the average citizen today says well i I wouldn't I wouldn't mind going back to the old system, but what I want is the new system just improved and
1: I want it work better. Yeah. And if, if, if we would just spend more of other people's money and less of mine, it will work. <laughs> but Bastiat, it really struck me as I looked around. Bastiat's claim that the state is the fiction that each of us can live at the expense of all of us is born out here. The mass transit system, a public mass transit system is... The fiction that each of us can ride at the expense of all of us, and you can't. And you'd be better off if you would just pay. Well, certainly, it's... if you add the fare and the cost that you're paying in taxes and the aggravation cost of waiting, you're much better off under a private system.
0: Well, it's really interesting.
1: Well, there's a there's a there was some experience. I, I wanted to recommend a, a book to your readers. Um, there's uh, there was some experience with. Um, private urban transit in Los Angeles in Southern California. It was a book by Dan Klein, yep. a colleague of yours, and two yep. others, called Curb Rights. Uh-huh. And I, I think that's just why I actually wrote a review of that book some time ago. I think it's the most wonderful book. And it's more about taxis in a way than buses, although the distinction gets blurred once you start taking multiple people.
0: Yep.
1: And uh, I think it's a real question that most people... The, the reason I came back at you about why why don't we have private bus systems in the United States, it, it's just not an issue, and yet bus systems are bad, really bad, really expensive. They, they have almost no riders, and our roads are getting more and more congested. Why don't we allow private buses?
0: Yeah, I guess um, throwing it back in my face like that, my, my, my pat answer, which is really not a good answer, is was was the one I gave a minute ago, which is, well, people don't have the experience. They would the mental they, don't, models question? they don't trust it, they yep. wouldn't think it would work. But you know, here's the, here's the, the let's move into the mental models area. Um, the question of mental models a little more deeply. W- what I find fascinating is you're right. Everyone in New York, Chicago, certainly LA, certainly Washington, D.C., Boston, et cetera, would say we can't have a private system no. going everywhere, which way and that way. They drive recklessly. It's unregulated. And you could say, well, they don't, my, my bad answer was, yeah, but they haven't had the experience of it. But, but they have the experience of it in every other area, and it yeah. works great. Yeah. <laughs> they have the experience of it in food, they have the experience of it in shirts, they have the experience of it with. Uh, the creation of movies. Nobody says well, we shouldn't let private the private sector make movies. There'll be well, too they, many. It'll be. <laughs> well, <laughs> we need those government movies. We need government movies. No one says that. Everyone understands that. That's when
1: well, they do have some experience. Have you ever gone to an airport and taken a super shuttle? That's a private bus system, but we limit it to taking to and from airports
0: and i think we give them a monopoly. Yeah, I oh think yeah. We we just, regulate just in case them.
1: Incentives break out. We have to give them a monopoly. <laughs>
0: right. They they have to pledge to charge a certain amount and yeah. then they get a monopoly cuz yeah.
1: Well, otherwise they'll be undercutting the taxi drivers that have a different monopoly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. No. and 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 cuz the way you would introduce the world of private buses of course in an american city is that you wouldn't say okay uh, this whole mass transit thing's a failure. The buses are incredibly expensive. They don't work very well. The routes aren't the right ones. So we're just going to wipe it out and let the private sector emerge. That would never fly, obviously. So you'd yep. have to. So instead, what would happen is that an entrepreneur would say, "You know, I think I could make a profit with a private bus." And of course, the city bus city would say, "Oh, but that would take away." The cream you would be skimming the cream we're off already the top. losing money
1: we'll we're already losing more. money
0: that's going to drain even our few riders away we can't allow it so letting a thousand flowers bloom is just not going to happen yeah
1: instead of yes we want to get people out of their cars by all means let's have a private bus system which is the right answer
0: yeah it's actually a really interesting thought uh when you think about – That's
1: been the biggest effect in Chile is how many people have gone from riding mass transit to taking private single-person cars on long trips to commute.
0: Well, when I was there uh, 25 so or so years ago, there was a palpable, visible uh, brown cloud yeah. over the city that could be seen from the mountains. Uh, I assume it's better, but maybe it's, not. It's,
1: it's still quite bad. It's, a, a, it's an inversion like you get in Mexico City and Denver for exactly
0: the same reasons. hmm you got the uh, ocean and then the mountains. Yeah, and it's trapped in that basin. But I assume they've improved because they're a wealthier country. I assume they put in more regulation.
1: They have more cars now, and they have a little bit more environmental regulation about emissions. That was one of the big complaints about the old buses. But that's a separate problem about whether you have to have certain environmental regulations that the bus has to satisfy. This was we're not sure that the market is providing this right and so the market can't provide it under any circumstance and we're saying we were worried about the people who were least well off and so everybody has to have the same horrible standard of service which is hardly a solution
0: but it's fair it's it is fair in a certain repulsive uh, <laughs> destructive uh, inhuman way yeah
1: well I, then i actually wanted to branch out just For a moment in the little bit of time that we have left when we talk about mental models people don't if you said private buses they would say well no that would be wrong and if you talk to them for a minute they may not have a very good reason why and maybe they do maybe they have arguments that i haven't thought of so i'm i'm happy to hear those in comments folks but there's a lot of things a lot of contracts that uh, on their face appear probably to make people better off that we're going to say no no you don't get to do that and it's hard to say just why and some of, the, some of the, the examples that people use are use of drugs. Maybe I use drugs instead of using alcohol, so we have certain restrictions saying, I can't sell you this, but I can not sell you that. But one of the most interesting, I think, is organ sales. Now, we have a system in the United States where we constantly lament the fact that there aren't nearly enough organ
0: donors. It's for kidneys or heart transplants after someone passes away or in retinas. or skin
1: corneas, yeah, yeah. all sorts of things. That Now, the, the way that a transaction works is somebody who needs something offers a certain amount for it. And somebody who has it says, now, is it worth it to me to accept that in exchange? And by organ donations, I'm not thinking so much about while I'm alive. I can't donate much while I'm alive. I can donate one kidney. But on my death, particularly in the event of heaven forefend an yeah. untimely death, then... If, well, millions and millions of dollars are being buried or incinerated, when I would have accepted a much smaller payment than you are willing to pay for these organs that were either burying or burning, why? Why is it that I'm not allowed to write a contingent contract saying I will sell my organs upon my death to this company that will find a donor very quickly? And the company would be able to make money on the difference. Now, it's true that many people would not be able to afford this. But as it stands, we're basically saying that the price of organs should be infinite because we won't let anybody charge anything over zero. Because you're welcome to give it away.
0: Yeah, I think – well, and we're encouraged to give it away, but we're not allowed to –
1: And then when there's not enough, we wonder why.
0: Yep. Um, I think there is a mental model factor to this, which is it creeps people out, whatever – there are legitimate arguments. I, I don't think they're persuasive. There are legitimate arguments about the incentives that such a system would provide if you could sell and buy them. Well, and that's
1: that's the the, the, the last thing they're that I want to get to me. To. But well, but it, but it but wrapped up in this is a lot of times we say our objection to the use of incentives is really an objection to the disparity of wealth. So suppose I'm poor and say my only option is to sell my kidney. I I need medicine for my daughter. Well, most of us think there's probably something wrong with that. You shouldn't be in that position. But we go from you shouldn't have to do that to, no, you shouldn't be able to do that. The one thing you could do to make yourself better off, we won't let you do.
0: That's right.
1: And I don't see how that helps them. If you want to help them, that's fine. Let's make it so that his daughter gets the medicine she needs.
0: Now, it's an interesting question. Uh, Our emotional baggage about that kind of transaction. I think that is part of it. Uh, We wish it would just go away. Someone who is so desperate, we wish it would
1: go away. But the 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 fact that we're going to say you can't use any kind of contract, I I don't know how much it would be worth for, say, someone between the age of twenty and forty to write a contingent contract in the event of their death that their organs go, and the payment only takes place if they actually die. So it's not that I get something and then I have moral hazard problems because I drink and ruin my organs. Um, It's contingent. Right now on my driver's license there's a heart which says that if I die they can take my organs for free. A lot more people would have that heart on their driver's license if there were some flat fee, say of $1,000, which many companies would pay. The act as well, broker.
0: More like 10 Yeah, but 20, so, so, A
1: thousand. Yeah. A thousand would, would make a lot more of these available. There I'm are not people, so sure. I don't well, know. people are dying. They're dying and li- living li- lives of dialysis. Their eyes don't work because they can't get a cornea. This is a real important problem in the sense a lot of people are suffering needlessly because we have this baggage. Oh, no, you shouldn't have to sell that. And so we're going to make pass a law saying that you're not able to.
0: You're not allowed to, yeah. Um, no, I, I'm just saying. I think it would take a larger sum of a thousand to get people to change their behavior to to offer their, do- you know, given that the money's going go to go cool to the states. the cool thing about
1: the cool thing about the market is one of us is wrong, and we would find that out.
0: Yeah, that's what's so great. And maybe it is a thousand, but uh, and
1: maybe it's a hundred thousand. there there's some price though that somebody yeah. would pay because now a liver is worth a million or more, and that's just a sign of the fact that there's a restriction on supply.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. So what? You know what motivates this podcast for me. Part of what motivates it, um, doing this thing called economic education that you and I are both involved in in various ways, is the idea that if people think about the consequences enough of what their actions are, or what policies are, that will increase the demand for good policies. And um, what this what this mental model um, explanation suggests is that that's a pipe dream. That teaching people economics is not going to help. Not, I think it'll help at the margin. Meaning, some people who are maybe a little bit perturbed by a market transaction are now, if they realize how many more kidneys we'd get if we rewarded people, then maybe they'll move. But maybe it's not enough people. I don't know.
1: I think a lot of people, if if, if you or I get a chance to talk to them for half an hour, would at least say, you know, I'm no longer as sure as I was, and maybe my goals are too modest. But I'm not saying we necessarily have to go to a market-based solution in every case. If people were just more skeptical about grandiose claims for planning solutions, I'd be happy, because that would have solved the Transantiago case. Yeah,
0: that would move us a long way. That's we, true. we've
1: got a private system, there's some problems, and they say, we're going to start over from scratch. We're going to have a completely different incentive system. We're going to have a completely different set of routes. What do you think? And I'd say, gosh, that seems like a bad idea. Yep. That's all I'm looking for.
0: Yeah. yeah. That that's um, yeah that that's a comfort, and I think we could get there. I think we're helping people get there. Although it's interesting, the failure of the Soviet Union, uh, it it did end. I think for many people, the empirical experience of of socialism and communism, whether whether you whether you say it was a good, a fair experiment or not. I think a lot of people did learn the lesson that central planning doesn't work very well. But they, they only learned it as a general lesson. They don't want to move to a socialist state. Oh, but, but, in, a, but on this particular area, they're per, say transportation, they're perfectly happy accepting yep. the Soviet system.
1: But look at, the, look at the sleight of hand. It used to be the competition was between two different systems of organizing economic activity and the socialist calculation debate in which Hayek and others were involved was, is it possible to get the information that we would need and be able to motivate people to act without being in a market setting because the market has all these problems? And that, to that question, the collapse of the Soviet Union and other communist economies seems to have said, well, no, you can't do that. But there's, there's a, this is a different agenda. That's not what the people in Santiago said. They said, this is a problem of social justice. The fact that the market performs the way that it does creates problems of social justice. So all of the old arguments are being imported. All of the same solutions are being imported under that social justice agenda that used to be used in favor of communism, but now no longer you can because that debate is over. So all that's different is the rationale.
0: Yeah, it's interesting as to who pushes that agenda, though. It's surprising that that there's still an entrepreneurial opportunity for that politician. Uh, part yeah, of that,
1: that, That's why I stick to the mental models. I mean, I'm a student of Douglas North, and so he was interested in the mental models kind of approach. But when Michelle Bachelet, the president of Chile, came out and said, I apologize, particularly to the poor, because that's the people that this policy was supposed to help. And nobody says, okay, let's go back to the old system. Then there's something wrong.
0: With us, <laughs> uh, well, it's a fascinating story. Um, I'm glad you're back in the confines of the United States, Mike. But uh, you did uh, the trip was clearly worthwhile just for that those set of insights. What a phenomenal um, a case of applied political economy!
1: I, I was incredulous, and then everything I learned just got better and better. If you like train wrecks. <laughs>
0: My guest today has been Mike Munger of Duke University. Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: It was wonderful, as always.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening.